Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Jean Benedict Rafa, an author and expert in Jungian psychology. Jean has lived two lives, the second of which began with a dream in midlife, leading her to follow a deep need to be herself. Her work and her books are an effort to help others do the same. Jean's latest book and winner of the Nautilus Award is titled The Soul's Twins, Emancipate Your Feminine and Masculine Archetypes. The book offers a guide through masculine and feminine archetypes for those who desire greater self-fulfillment and freedom to be themselves, and who wish to activate new archetypes of loving relationships within themselves and others. Jean is a kind, intelligent, fun person, and I learned a lot from her, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as well. Okay. Hi, Jeannie. Hi. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with me one more time. I know we tried this once before, had some audio issues, so I really appreciate you coming back. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you again. Thanks for inviting me to come back. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. Um, I thought it was a fun conversation. I really regret. Uh, it was my mistake messing up the audio, but um, uh, so I regret it, but um, I'm glad to sit here and chat with you again. And I think... I think um, one thing I we ha we hadn't really talked about much, uh, but I wanted to ask you about is just your summer home, because uh, when I first reached out to you, you had said uh, you had responded that you're in the Rockies, no, not the Rockies, the Smokies, and um, you've had some connection issues. So just tell me a little bit about this summer getaway that you've got. It looks I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of it in video right now. It looks pretty amazing. It is. Uh... We're on uh, 30 acres of country mountain land, forested land. It's part of the Nantahala National Forest. We're, our property is just at the edge of it. it. It borders it. But our property, same forest, leads into it. And um, we have bears. Actually, two weeks ago, I was sitting on this front porch reading a book and I caught a glance of movement out my left eye and I looked up there was the hugest black bear had to be 400 pounds oh, strolling along just strolling along the gravel <laughs> the gravel driveway like he belonged there and walking down toward our creek so I mean it's full of wonders like that um, I have a a lovely, bold, rushing creek 10 feet away from the house. 
um, down a gorge, a ways down. And a mountain view, we're in a valley, a nested valley in the mountains. And we're close to uh, a couple of towns within 20 minutes. Uh, but we have terrible internet reception <laughs> and we can't wait, <laughs> can't wait to get that repaired. Um, but we love it. It's a real respite from the noise of the loud city traffic. Yeah. And how long have you been escaping there? Or how long do you own the property? Since 19, since 1984, um, our, my husband's father and, uh, stepmother bought this property in the 70s and then um, they decided to sell it so we bought it and have continued to improve on it and so it's now full of flowers and paths and hiking paths and trails it's just a very special place for us we're very very blessed to be able to have a place like this yeah yeah well that's that sounds amazing um yeah, I'm glad that you have a little getaway every summer. It's it's just imagining it. It's kind of like a dream that I have to one day just have a place. I, I don't even need like a big house. I don't need a big cabin, just something simple to get away uh, from the heat of the summer or something. But um, okay, so last time we chatted, we talked towards the end of our conversation, we talked about your most recent book. And um, I have, I want to read the title so that I don't mess it up, but it's it's titled The Soul's Twins, Emancipate Your Feminine and Masculine Archetypes. And so I, I'm really curious to dive into the book and um, kind of discuss your motivation for writing it, what you learned along the way, and kind of what the, the key points are. Um, but I've also been, just recently, I was telling you, I've been listening to some podcasts. There's this podcast I just started, and it's actually by some two guys that are out here in Arizona, and it's called the Know Thyself Podcast, and it's it's basically based on psychology and mythology, and it's it's very interesting. And they were talking about um, some of these. They were talking about a lot about masculine and feminine, kind of the masculine and feminine powers in our world and in in our own experience. And it's gotten me really thinking about just how how much the masculine and feminine archetypes play out like how much their interaction affects us as individuals but also as a society in 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 general and um and then also i've just I've, i read a lot of joseph campbell and i'm reading his series on the masks of god and as you read that what that is is a, is a history of people over over long stretches of time and basically the different types of mythologies or ideologies they come to embody in order to survive as a group of people. And one thing that you notice is this constant back and forth of flipping back and forth between being being kind of geared towards the masculine and then switching back towards geared towards the feminine and back to the masculine, back to the feminine. And it makes me wonder why why does it seem that over time humans haven't figured out how to balance these things like how have we have we not figured out that they're both really good for us neither one of them is bad and neither one of them is good or better but they're both good for us and so yeah it's just really interesting that all these things it's i don't know if you want to call it synchronicities or what but all these things come to me at the same time and then i get to sit down and talk to you about 
these two archetypes or these two very strong i don't know mechanisms in society so first of all i would i would love to just i like to do this sometimes is just get different people's definitions of things what are the word like what's the definition of the word that you're playing off of so maybe you could help me understand um archetypes just from a high level what is an archetype and and how do we get down to like a, a masculine and a feminine archetype okay well wow it, it, let me just mention that the synchronicities that you're experiencing are um, are evidence that you are uh, exactly where you're supposed to be doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Those synchronistic events come up. The more we pay attention to where we are and how we're behaving and what we're thinking and noticing our inner lives, the more synchronicities happen. That is just an absolute reality of fact. Um, so, and what you described about what you're going through is really exactly what my book is about. Um, it is about the masculine and feminine archetypes. So let me just define what I mean by archetype. Um, Archetypes are structuring principles that we're all born with in our minds. Uh, they allow us to register and organize information in images and emotions. It's just, it's, that's a very difficult concept to get. But if you think of how you are born um, automatically furnished with a way to look at life in terms of uh, opposites and in terms of archetypes. So for example, a snake is uh, the mother snake lays an egg in the ground, the egg, and then she slithers away. And eventually the egg hatches or not, unless it's eaten by a raccoon or something. And that baby snake is not born with the archetype of mother. It, it doesn't need to be nurtured. It doesn't need to be protected. It doesn't know that it needs to be protected or nurtured. There's no archetype of snake or of mother or father in a snake's mind. So as human beings, though, we have evolved over billions of years to the point that we are becoming more and more self-aware and more and more complex. Our brains are huge. Uh, it, they're able to handle a lot more information and we're able to understand what we're seeing about ourselves. So uh, the archetypes are basic structures. For example, Everybody is furnished with an archetype for mother and father. Everybody is furnished with an archetype for a queenly energy, the energy of uh, uh, wanting, uh, being an authority that wants to preserve its culture, its species. It's also, and the father can be like the king, but I don't see them as opposites. I see mother and father as opposites, the, the two sides of the feminine and masculine. 
And by the way, the feminine and masculine, the feminine is like a drive for self-preservation. We are driven to preserve ourselves. That's the masculine archetype. Sorry, I got it backwards. The feminine archetypes are those images and structures in us that are driven to protect the species, not to give birth, to protect our children, to, to stay around and take care of the family. Whereas the father is about preserving himself, proving his power and his strength and his identity, finding himself, going out in the world to do heroic deeds, to rescue help, you know, helpful, helpless maidens, <laughs> you know, to prove himself by killing the dragon. The feminine opposite of that is the mother who's driven to protect the species. He protects his ideals, his family, his country. He proves himself to the world. Our feminine side gets that. We have both. Everybody has both. But our feminine side want, is, the, is the one with the empathy and the desire for relationship and the desire to connect and the desire to be of help. Uh, he has that too, of course. Um, but the desire to make sure, not just that she can be the best she can be, but also to preserve all humanity, all animals, all form of life. So everybody has both of those drives within them. Well, those drives are archetypes. They're archetypes of the feminine in us, and the archetype of the masculine in us. And then you can break those down into four pairs. And again, I think of the queen and the king, uh, the, the father and the mother, the queen and the warrior, the mediatrix, like the shaman type medium who connects in males and females, and the sage, which would be at that masculine drive to develop my understanding to become individuated, to grow, and so on. And then the last two are the beloved and the lover. Well, we all have those energies and, and they come out differently in everybody depending on the way we're raised and the way our mothers treated us. If our mothers neglected us, then we might have a, a real issue about the mother archetype. We might have a hard time appreciating or noticing nurturing women because it's just what mothers are supposed to do and we're not happy with our mothers anyway so you know we're wounded by them perhaps because we were neglected by them and so we might struggle with feminine issues because we weren't trained to respect them and to appreciate them at an early enough age so we developed some archetypes and are much more aware of some of these than we are of others. And that influences our personalities, our behavior, our goals in life, our relationships, and especially our relationships um, and our attitudes toward femininity and masculinity. So the masculine hero myth has been the big story of patriarchal culture ever since it began about five or 6,000 years ago, at least in the Western world. 
And once the goddess worship stopped and the God, heavenly God worship started, the, the patriarchs began to fear and reject and ultimately outlaw the feminine authority in us and the feminine strengths in us because they were focused on self-preservation, on proving themselves and becoming more conscious and self-aware. And that's the basis for the whole hero journey myths of Joseph Campbell. And that hero myth runs through every single culture in the world because everyone wants to discover who they are and prove themselves. But some cultures allow only men to do that and force women into roles of staying home. And so down the generations, people start thinking, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's that men are in charge because they're bigger and stronger and they don't have babies and women are not, don't have the same ways of thinking, don't have the same qualities, the same intelligence, the same capabilities as men, because they're the ones who have the babies and they're supposed to stay home and cook and serve the family. So they come second because self-preservation comes first. You see what I'm saying? It's a, it's, a, it's, but every culture interprets that differently. Not every culture has disowned the feminine as much as patriarchal cultures have like our country and other countries. So anyway, that's um, the book is about that. It's about how to understand what archetypes are healthy and strong in you and which ones have not been developed. And there is a, a sort of a, um, it's a little personal test that self-assessment you can take in it to find out which archetypes in you are strong and healthy and which ones are ones that maybe you've neglected or have real strong shadow sides that are influencing your life in negative ways. So you take that partnership profile, it's called, and the ultimate goal is of that and of the book is to help you understand how these powerful archetypal energies within you are influencing your life for better or for worse. And to help you, the book is written to help you understand that, develop what you need to develop, heal what you need to heal so that you can grow more fully into wholeness and full consciousness. And one more word about myth. Myths are created by human beings who feel the power of the archetypes. They feel that heroic urge. They feel that warlike urge. They feel that territorial, territor, territorialism, that's <laughs> not easy to say. They fear that and they, and they know they have it in themselves and they wanna save themselves, but they don't feel they're powerful enough to do that. They're afraid they don't. So they project all these archetypes onto the gods and goddesses of mythology. So mythology really, it's not that it's not true. It may not be factual on the outside, but it's true to our souls. It's true on the inside. Mythology tells us the true stories of who we are and what our archetypes are. And I talk a lot about that in my book as well. So if we can understand that the gods are speaking to us within us and we project them out into the world and gods and goddesses, if we can see that we own that power and that 
And if we can see how we're using it or misusing it, we can grow into the people that we always were meant to be and wanted to be. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the way you talk about mythology, because it's almost like it's really hard to analyze yourself because it's so close. It's so personal and scary and emotional. But if you can just find a story in mythology that is about the thing that you're going through right now that you're struggling with, then it provides an external source of truth that you get to analyze that provides insight into what you're experiencing, right? So that when the story fits, it's just like when you have a dream and the interpretation of the dream connects and you feel it connect, it can become this useful, helpful thing um, because you've identified it as something that matches what you're going through. Exactly. Exactly. You've got it totally right. Everybody has a myth that will resonate with their souls in one way or another because the myths are about the archetypal energies in us, the powers, the strengths, the life-changing urges that we can't control. Myths are about those things. So if we find a myth that reminds us of what we're going through, it can help enormously in explaining who we are. And that's what the book is for, is to help people see how they can remit their lives according to which archetypes are, are really powerful in them and what the negative and positive aspects of, of that power are. Um, so every chapter has an archetype and then it talks about some of the myths about that archetype. And then it talks about how what the archetype um, of that energy has done or can do in your life. And it shows you how it doesn't matter whether you are a female or you are a male, you have the same potential for that same energy, whether you're more, you feel more like the, the god or the goddess or the prince or the princess, you still have both of those energies. Everybody has the same archetypes. So there's no point in talking about gender, really. I mean, because this being, it causes so many stereotypes. As I mentioned before, the husband yeah. has to go out to work. The wife has to stay home. But if we can get rid of the whole gender thing and think, wait, I have all of these archetypes, but my culture has not allowed me to recognize that I have these archetypes because it thinks I'm supposed to only serve those archetypes. Yeah. So you see, if you understand and balance, if you see both sides, you can balance your own psyche and become more whole. And that's the whole point of the book. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, it's like, um, it's, it's like whichever culture you're growing up in, that culture is reinforcing the specific archetypes that you're leaning towards. And because of that, your worldview gets gets altered to match those archetypes, the way that those archetypes are perceived. And that's, oh man, to, to, <laughs> taking your worldview and bringing it down can be extremely difficult, extremely painful. Um, so I want to go, you've said so much and you've covered a lot in the book and I want to go into each little topic along the way, but I want to go way back to when you were just at the very beginning, you were talking about archetypes and you were saying that we're all, because we're mammals, because we're homo sapiens, we're all born with this, this basically with this psychology. It's like a software that's, we're, we're all come out of the package with the same software. 
And so these archetypes are lined up inside of us. They're like waiting to see which ones are going to be the most important. And you said that we have, um, the first one you pointed out, you said masculine and feminine, which is covered a lot in your book. But then you went and you broke down those into, or, help me understand this, because this is where I just really, I, I'm, I'm not like a psych major. I never study this stuff. It's just all come to me through books and podcasts, essentially. But um, is there is there an actual list that somebody's put together of archetypes, or is that too broad and too difficult, or is or is, you know, is it just, is there an infinite number of archetypes or is the archetype male and female? And then with each, within each of those, there's all these different categories, right? So you have, you have, you have the potential to be a king or a queen, but you also have the potential to be a tyrant. And so is it like some kind of a, is it some kind of a, uh, you know, a distribution over these different types of potential archetypes where, some people become the king and some people become the tyrant, but that's all part of the male archetype or are all these considered separate? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Okay. Think of it as a very long, think of your psyche as having a very long continuum. Nobody knows exactly what's on that continuum of potentials. Nobody has made a complete list of archetypes. Carl Jung was my mentor, the psychiatrist from Zurich, Switzerland, uh, named several that we know from mythology come from every culture. Okay, masculine, some are not, I want, you wouldn't have to say even masculine or feminine, or I mean, we won't even have to say male or female, but we can say, think of this continuum as having of your potential as having a masculine uh, focus, the life um, preservation, self-preservation focus. And at the other end is the continuum that is, we call feminine, but it's not just female and male because we're not talking about gender. We're talking about psychological potential. Humanity just has a, has had a habit throughout existence of thinking that male is totally about gender. But if we say masculine and feminine, we're not talking about gender anymore. We're talking about a full range of potential that is subsumed under those categories, the feminine aspects of life and the masculine aspects of life. Okay. Neither of these are good or bad. And in between, there's all kinds of blends of whatever your soul can focus on. Lots of them, lots of different archetypes. But in terms of the four, eight archetypes I mentioned that we think of as masculine and feminine, and we don't think of all archetypes as masculine and feminine. I'm only dealing with the masculine and feminine archetypes in this book. There are hundreds more more um okay if we just deal with the masculine and feminine uh, opposites although they're not really opposites they're partners but we tend to separate them into opposites we want to connect both sides and find our own special place on that continuum well, maybe I'm more oriented towards self-preservation. Maybe I'm more oriented to species preservation. Do I want to go a little bit more toward the other way? Not necessarily, because I'm happy with where I am. 
well, do I, am I somewhere in the middle and do I feel comfortable with both? And that would be an ideal. I don't think you would have to stand in the middle to be comfortable of both. I don't think the test, the partnership profile will show you that, but it will show you what your current preferences are at this point in your life, what the things are that you're focusing on, the qualities and characteristics. It will also help you see, the book talks about shadow qualities and bright, healthy, positive, light qualities. Everybody has those potential. Any one archetype has the potential from love to evil. Every archetype has that potential. And we don't even know what an archetype is. The only way we know is because we see them in the myths and dreams. We can't identify them in ourselves unless we ask ourselves what, what qualities might be associated with the qualities of a father or of a mother or which, which, what is this dream? What are the qualities of this dream image and which archetype as broadly explained in my book and in other books, which archetype and is that dream image about? So an archetype, our biological, psychological potential is not moral. It's not about morality. It's about life, nature, existing, thriving, trying to stay alive, trying to find some comfort. And the archetypes then can have very positive qualities that are healing and helpful to the world and are in from our perspective as human beings who want who do want to believe in right and wrong there is no right and wrong in nature there's just nature there's just yeah. life but in humans we we want most of us want to do the right thing unless we're so damaged that we want to fight back and you know destroy um so if you look at every masculine and feminine archetype, they both contain that full potential. And we call this the negative potential that we humans in this culture believe is negative. We call that the shadow. If it's something that we don't want to own about ourselves, most of us don't want to own or believe that we have the potential to be evil. But the potential to be evil is in every single one of us. It depends on the experiences in our lives and how self-aware we are and how healthy we can become through knowing ourselves, acquiring self-knowledge. So I, I think that's in terms of what I'm talking about in my book, the connection between masculine and feminine is a total continuum we can be anywhere in between and there's nothing good or bad or right about that it's all about what we do with what we have and what we're inclined to be yeah and and maybe in a way just what our culture perceives as acceptable or unacceptable and in yeah the way that you describe it you know that's kind of where the shadow meets right that's where the shadow comes up is where you've been trained to not like a certain thing about yourself or not believe a certain thing about yourself or allow this thing to come up and so it's this interesting thing that you're talking about where there's this all human beings exist on this continuum psychologically and yes 
and in a way so in the in the world that we live in in the western world in the united states for example we live in this world where we're told one thing but we're taught a different thing for example we're taught you live in America, and so you're free to be and do whatever, you, wh- whoever you are and whatever you want to do, you can be that thing. But at the same time, you're taught this is what boys do, this is what girls do. This is what a good, you know, this is what a good student does, this is what a bad student does. This is what a good employee does, this is what a bad employee does. And so all along the way, you're told over and over and over that you're free, you're free, you're free. But at the same time, you're shown repeatedly that you are not free. You're not free. You're not free. And in the, in this realm that we're talking about, when when it starts to come to when when it comes to terms with things like masculinity, femininity, yeah, it's really interesting because what you're talking about really doesn't have anything to do with sexuality, right? We haven't we haven't gotten to the point where we're talking about preference or identity, but in some weird way in this world that we live in, those are the things that get focused on. It's, it's all about identity. And, and the reason I bring all this other stuff up about, we live in this world where we're told you can do anything you want, but then you're shown that you cannot do anything you want. I think that that's why the whole identity thing has bubbled up. It's like this, this weird thing where everybody's like, no, this is who I am, and the world's screaming back at them. Yes, you're allowed to be that thing, but no, you're not allowed to be that thing. And it's, you get all this weird confusion around what is masculine, what is feminine, what is appropriate, what's inappropriate, uh, what's identity, and what's just somebody screaming to be seen at all, you know? Oh, I know, exactly. Um, and I've struggled with that issue ever since I had, I was 10 years old. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But yes, our culture, every culture has different, expectations and shoulds and should nots for the culture in general. And those are often taught in our religious teachings. We're given commandments, we're given rules that are written in stone and from God above. And and these are the things that we have to believe or we're bad. And preachers tell us, well, you know, you're a terrible sinner. And if you don't um, believe this, then you're going to go to hell. Not every, <laughs> I, I'm a very much of a fan of spiritual knowledge and, and, and I do believe in, in something extraordinarily supernatural. Other, I believe in that and I believe it has great power and we can connect with it through our inner work. So I'm not disparaging religion at all. I just don't like the messages of some kinds of organized religion that get the message wrong. And instead of helping us discover ourselves, they urge us to believe what they believe and then hate or fight someone who doesn't believe that. And that discord, that divisiveness, it's all about what we've been conditioned to believe And what we fear about ourselves that we're afraid not to believe because then we'll be bad. And that creates incredible conflict in everybody. Everybody has that kind of conflict. Adolescents are 
masters at expressing that internal conflict without having a clue why they have it. And, I'm, and I don't mean they're just indoctrinated by religion and, and indoctrination sounds like a harsh word, but essentially that's kind of what it is. Every institution of society indoctrinates us to its values. And we don't know that. And teenagers begin to suspect it. And then usually around the age of 35 or 40, some of us say, wait, this is wrong. I can't do this anymore. I'm out of here. You know, this is just not working for me, but I don't know where to go. So maybe I'll go have an affair or maybe I'll, you know, blame somebody, my wife and divorce her or my husband and divorce him. Or maybe because I'm hurting in here. I don't know why. It's all that conflict between who your soul really is and what its potential really is and what your culture has told you to believe in while not really wanting you to be free because then you won't be able to believe in what your culture wants you to believe in and they won't be able to control you anymore <laughs> yeah it's a big it's, it's, yeah. it's a big circle whatever um yeah, it's interesting because I think about what you said with the pastor, for example. There's a pastor, and he's telling you, if you don't do what God says, you'll go to hell, right? And when I think about that, right. I just—the thing about the United States, for example, the reason that—it's just—it's interesting. So Nietzsche, way back in the day, Nietzsche said that God is dead. He was talking about Europe, and— Given right. what happened in World War II, it was clear that God died in Europe and they needed something to fill the void and they picked the wrong thing. But what's odd about it is in America, like God didn't die. Like God hasn't died. He's still here. And the reason I, the reason I think that is, is because in Europe, they had some very established religions that were clearly institutionalized by that point. And there was all these groups of people that were saying, this isn't how we're supposed to be worshiping God. And those are the people that went to America. And they became, they came to America and they became literalists. In America, God is literal. He actually exists. So those stories that you hear about God, he's real. And so when the pastor says, if you don't do what God says, you will go to hell, like he really believes that. Like he thinks that hell is a real place. So it's this very literal understanding of God and, you know, I grew up in an extremely literal version of religion, being LDS and kind of the way that my parents did it, uh, LDS being Mormon. Um, but there's a much more painful version of hell than the one that comes after this life because you didn't do what God says. And that version of hell is existing in this life, trying to do what God says and not feeling the effects, right? When, you, when you're in when you're in your life and the thing that you envision for your life, the thing that you think is true and you imagine as being like the life you're supposed to be living, if that doesn't match the life that you're actually living, then that is a state of hell. That's a state of being in a place where there is no progress and you're trapped and you're unhappy. And um, unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of this literal teaching, you know, this teaching of, for example, we're talking about masculine and feminine, right? And from the perspective that you're taking, you're saying this is just a continuum that we can't even define. And any human being can land anywhere on that continuum, and it's fine. They're still a part of our tribe. They're still humans. 
But when you have this very literal world with pastors saying, you must do this, and, you know, the dragon of thou shalt, like you, you brought up the thou shalt, like what it does is it creates for people this very concrete way of looking at the world, this very black and white way of seeing things. And then they even start seeing this continuum of masculine and feminine as very concrete, where if you are born with a penis, you must be masculine. And if you're born with a vagina, you must be feminine. And to cross those borders is tantamount to a sin that would send you to, to, to this state of hell. And uh, to grow up in that world and then try to pull yourself back from it is uh, it can be a very difficult, painful process. It's that process of God dying and, <laughs> like Nietzsche said, God dying and falling into nihilism. Exactly. Exactly. You really summed it up beautifully. Um, literalism uh, forces you into conformity. And if you don't have a strong enough ego to question that, because you know in yourself, you, you have an idea of who you're supposed to be and what you want out of life. We're all born kind of as unique individual souls with our own agendas, own missions, I believe, <clears throat> because we're uniquely uh, made to have certain skills and talents that are unique to us. The combination of our skills and talents and interests is, is what we mean by our soul. And something in us knows that. But when you start getting indoctrinated in the cradle by this is what our family believes and this is what you may and may not do. And then you get indoctrinated by the church. And then you get indoctrinated by the schools about this is left brain learning that you have to have so that you can become powerful and successful and succeed. Well, maybe you're very right-brained and imaginative and creative, but you're afraid to go into art because you won't be able to make a living and artists don't get successful. And so here is this constant tension between the the way you're taught to conform to the values of your society and within you is your real soul struggling to get out. And it's, it's the hardest, it's the hardest work you will ever do to discover what your soul really is and to question the values of your parents and your and your culture and find a way to be true to yourself without thinking you have to destroy or escape everything you believed in in order to become who you are. It shouldn't be that hard, but it is because our cultures are so literalist. <laughs> uh, they're so literal in what we can and cannot do. Yeah. So um, that kind of teaching, it limits your ability to express your true soul. And it takes enormous courage to, to find a way to lovingly find and appreciate and love yourself and love the way you are when you are faced with criticism from all sides. It's, it's just extraordinarily difficult. 
And I think that that's basically been the struggle that women have had in patriarchy. Um, they've been told that they, up until the, until 1918, for heaven's sake, maybe it was 1916, women could not even vote in this culture, let alone go to college. Fathers could say, you can't go to college. You're a girl. You have to, you have to get a, a, a rich husband and then give me grandchildren. And it has to be at least one boy so I can continue my dynasty. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, those kinds of stereotypical beliefs are rampant in the cultures like ours. And we don't, we don't know that as children. As we, don't, we are afraid to question the authority of our parents. We're afraid to question the authority of the God we've been taught to believe in. It's a terrifying experience. I had a relative who was once in the cult known as the children of God. And I don't know if you ever heard of that, but it was very, uh, it was very much of a Christian fundamentalist brainwashing cult that practice all kinds of things that my relative just his soul rebelled against. And he, and they would tell you, you cannot leave. If you leave, you know, your life is going to be ruined if you leave this cult. And they had to move away from their parents, deny their parents. And then he finally left. His wife wouldn't come with him. He came to our house to live for about three months. And he, he said, I just feel like God is going to strike me dead any moment. I'm going to be hit by lightning because I've left the cult. That's how brainwashed he was to deny the truths of his own soul. And he was told that if he spoke up about it, you know, he'd be dead in one way or another. That is, that is a terrible extreme of what any kind of con cult cultural conditioning can do if it's totally one-sided. If the authorities in charge have, have self-serving motives of power and control, and if the adherents, who generally are the weakest and most vulnerable because they're looking for answers, and if they get trapped in that kind of mentality, it can destroy their lives. And yet, we're trained as children to be obedient to authorities. Yeah. So how do you rebel against, how do you rebel against an authority you believe in and, and without going through agony without going through hell the hell you mentioned yeah it's hell for people who are different from the mainstream conditioning yeah i mean you're, you're but, speaking my story now you're telling my story because i grew okay. up i grew up uh lds which is these days it's a pretty fairly mainstream religion there's mormons lds people all over the place but um but it's still very it's a very literal religion. It's still very black and white about masculinity, femininity, who is God and what is his relationship to us and what we're supposed to be doing. But um, it's really interesting. So like I grew up, I grew up in this religion, but my parents wanted to almost take it to like another level. And so they raised us in the country, separated from everybody else. And then they also homeschooled us. And so I didn't have a society of peers until I was, you know, in middle school. It's the first time I was ever around other people. And um, so I, everything you're saying, like, I understand <laughs> what that world is like. And when people, when people question how you could stay in a religion like that for so long, the answer is really simple. It's, it's what you keep saying. It starts in the cradle, right? Because 
going yes. going back to this idea that we're humans, we're mammals, we're when we're born, we are 100% reliant on our mother to the point where growing up there's a point where we have to realize we aren't the same person as our mother. That's how strong the bond is, right? And so right. Just like a a any baby mammal in the wilderness would follow their mother or risk dying, a human must follow their parent or risk dying. And the interesting thing about humans is that we don't just have biology, but we have culture. And we've been talking a lot about culture and a lot about how it works. It works on the same principles as biological evolution. It's just that instead of instead of an evolution of genetics, it's an evolution of memes or ideas. And when you grow up in this world where, you know, for me, for example, I'm isolated from the rest of society, uh, both physically and also kind of technologically or digitally because back then we didn't have the technology we have today and on top of that any kind of tv or entertainment was very filtered coming into my house and so there was this just this disconnect and so growing up in that world you have no ability to develop another story and that's kind of the whole struggle is that you have this feeling inside of you that whatever your parents say must be true because they love you and they want to protect you and that's their whole purpose for being there but then to be completely isolated from an outside society you can't even develop an alternate story to rely on and without that alternate story then you're just trapped because because you're not going to willingly very few people will willingly accept hell which is to step outside of your story without another story to take its place right to not exist in a place that matches your story and so it's just, it's extremely difficult. And I think that's why a lot of people, it takes until their 30s, right? Because they have to get to a point where their brains have developed enough, uh, they have enough life experience, and they have enough, you know, experience supporting themselves, even financially, that they have the courage to walk away from the tribe that they've always been a part of. Exactly. Um, that's what according to Jungian psychology and, uh, and in my own experience, the first half of life is essentially to find a way to fit in enough and to develop your skills enough and to develop enough self-understanding psychologically to go out there and enough ego strength to go out there and start finding a job and finding a partner and um, building a home and creating a family and creating a, um, a safe and comfortable environment for yourself. That's what the first half of life is for. And you're not going to acquire very much self-knowledge in the first half of your life. If you do, you won't probably understand it until you start questioning it in the second half of your life. So that's where the reason for the midlife, midlife crisis. That's where... Um, culture and soul meet that's where conformity and my soul's reality meet in that terrible time that many people experience not everybody does but people who find that they are miserable inside because they still don't know who they are and they still don't know how to become who they want to be or who they think they want to be because of all the shoulds and shouldn'ts of society and of their families and of life, early life is about getting the strength and the 
ability to earn a life for yourself and becoming independent. When you've done that, oh, now what? Now, why am I still miserable? <laughs> um, and I experienced, that's my story. And my story, uh, should I tell you my dream that started it? Yeah, go ahead. I think that would be, uh, a, this would probably be a good place to leap off onto that. It's because it's, this dream of yours was kind of the inspiration for a whole life change, which led to these books that you've written in this, this conversation that we're having now. So yeah, go ahead. I would love to hear your dream. Okay, good. Um, the reason it's important is because uh, at the time I didn't know, I just knew how, how terrible, terrified I was, but it showed me some important, my soul was screaming to be known from a very early age and to be appreciated and valued. And it was a very powerful force within my psyche. Not everybody has that. Some people grow up in families where they're understood and they're fine. But at any rate, okay, so my dream is when I'm 10 years old and I have it uh, at a time when uh, my father, who is a policeman, doesn't spend very much time with us at all anymore. He's gone. My mother, who is the wage earner, and has a job as a nurse is, is supporting us and taking care of all of our needs. So uh, daddy's not here, mama's in charge and guiding me and I'm not feeling so safe anymore. And I'm becoming aware that, well, women can be nurses, but they can't be doctors and men can be policemen, but they can't, um, stay home and take care of their children you know because uh, in my world in those days that rarely happened if ever I never heard of it happening um, so I'm so I had this dream when I'm 10 years old and in the dream I'm walking along a railroad track and there are woods on either side and off in the distance I see just sort of a light but I don't know where I'm going or why I'm here or why my father isn't with me and they're the same railroad tracks that we actually lived near when I was five years old for a year. And my real father actually took me down those railroad tracks. And as a policeman, he was very interested in safety and child safety and traffic safety. And he said, oh, don't ever walk on the railroad tracks alone. And he, he told me about trains and don't ever go into the woods alone because there are hobos there, you know. So... I'm remembering this five years later when I, in my dream, I'm remembering, where's my father? Why, why am I here all by myself? And there are hobos in the woods or the train could come, but these two tracks I have to follow. And all of a sudden I hear this voice behind me saying from the left, which is the direction of the unconscious, by the way, from my left saying, Jean, Jean. And I turn around and it's Tonto. And if you remember the Lone Ranger in Tonto, that's what I grew up on. Uh, and Tonto and the Lone Ranger were my heroes. And their horse, Silver, was the dream that I finally fulfilled when I bought a dapple gray silver horse of my own 50 years later. Um, but these are symbols that were a, a very important aspects of my psyche. They were in my dream for a reason. They were telling me something. So, okay, I see my hero. Tonto says, the Lone Ranger wants to see you, follow me. So I turn around and I follow the Lone Ranger. I'm, I mean, Tonto. Um, 
how am I not going to follow Tonto? He's my hero. He's the tracker. He's like a wise man. He helps the Lone Ranger. He's, you know, this fabulous character. So I walk back down the tracks and then he says, walk down, look down here to down the embankment to the woods. There's green grass. There's trees behind it. Silver is grazing at the edge of the forest on the green grass. And standing in front of Silver is the Lone Ranger. And the Lone Ranger says, stand here. So I walk down the embankment, stand against the wall of the embankment directly across from him. I'm so excited. My hero is going to teach me something or ask me something or have a mission for me. And I get to be a hero too. You know, what is it going to be? I can't wait to hear what he's going to say. And he pulls his gun out of his holster and he aims it at me and he shoots me. And I feel this impact in my chest. And I'm thinking, oh, am I going to die? Can I really die? Am I going to die? Oh, no. I wake up screaming and my mother is shaking me saying, Jeannie, Jean, wake up, wake up. This is just a dream. It's just a dream. And I said to myself, this is not just a dream. I will never forget this dream. I was just shattered. I felt completely betrayed by my hero. Okay. What that taught me over the years was, um, and what the ensuing conditions of my life taught me, were that men got to be, in my world, men got to be the powerful heroes, not little girls, because little girls were victims. And I already kind of knew that from things I'd been hearing on the news about stuff that men do to girls and stuff. So I was getting an idea of that already. also. It also meant that I couldn't, um, I had a role in life that I had to follow. It also meant that even my hero and cultural heroes don't necessarily have the best interests of women in mind and of girls because they pass laws that restrict women and prevent them from living their lives and living their soul's truths. So over the years, this became more and more obvious to me. And so for a long time, I was very suspicious of men and and, uh, fearful of men in general that I didn't know because my dream told me I lived in a very dangerous world for little girls and vulnerable children. And my hero shot me, you know, I thought he was supposed to protect me. Three months after I had this dream, six months after I had this dream, my father died on a stakeout in the Everglades where he was looking for moonshiners. So now my physical human father is gone. So now I'm starting to get scared. And realized that I could die, that my mother could die, what was going to happen to me. So I lived with all those fears throughout high school. I'm 17 years old. I have an experience at church camp that convinces me with the Bible, that convinces me that that I suddenly understand. And, uh, And it speaks to me. And some whole new level of awareness awakens in me. I had always thought of the Bible as literal, and I had never understood its meaning. And then suddenly, 
this dream spoke to me, not the dream, the Bible, the experience that I was having at camp from from a Bible verse spoke to me and told me, you are uh, known and loved. You are known and loved by something beyond yourself. And there's a meaning behind all the literal stuff you're learning that speaks to you. Look, listen to that. Pay attention to that. I had two other religious awakenings that were very strong. But in the meantime, those experiences were teaching me to listen to myself, not to listen, not to have to. I didn't have to follow the mainstream of culture saying girls could do one thing, boys can only do another. I didn't have to follow um, the belief that only other religious people who are highly educated and have maybe even seen God and are direct in direct contact with God, only they have the answers. And, and I began to say, see, I had answers. There was something in me that wanted to come out. Well, that was my soul coming out. So years later, I began to find meaning um, in that. And we talked about that before. And you told me something about walking on the tracks in Tonto that I loved. You know, remember that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that this time in our conversation, we've come around to talking a lot about literalism, things that are very literal. Because, yeah. because yeah, when you talk about walking on the tracks, and I think about you growing up in this very literal world where you're shown that there really is only one way to, like, there's only one path. And here you right. are in this dream where there's, you're on a railroad track that's just a straight line in either direction surrounded by trees. So there's like one path. There's only one way to go. And you walked off of it. And right. it may, it's really interesting because I know that Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud had different ideas about dreams. But Sigmund Freud used to talk about how dreams were wish fulfillment. And it makes sometimes I like to question that, like think about it because... Because this dream seems like a nightmare. It scared you. You carried it with you your whole life. But in a way, was it a wish fulfillment to walk off the path and and to be killed? It, because to be to be killed in that manner, it, does it literally mean be killed, or is it um, the death of death, death of something else, death of a part of you that trusted yeah, that world, right? You start. You're so insightful. Absolutely, you're right. Yeah. It. Um, it was trying to take me off of the track of conformity and take and put me in a whole new and start a whole new story, start a whole new story and find that story and be true to that story. Yeah, it's a really, and the, the death. Sorry to cut you off, but it's like, like, it's a really, that's a really painful way to start a new story because the way <laughs> that your psyche decided to do it was by, by taking your hero and turning him into a villain. And this is your new exactly. story. This is your new story. So go for it. That's, <laughs> so it was my new story for a long time. Males are villains and fathers die and you're not safe in a man's world. Um, but my soul needed me to know that. And the death, the imagery of death in dreams, it doesn't refer to a literal physical death. You're right. It refers to the death of some old way of thinking or being that has to die before you can grow into your truths and into your soul. And so the dream was not saying uh, I'm going to get killed next year, even though for years I couldn't walk past a, a window if it was lit inside my house without imagining a man out there with a gun that was going to shoot me. 
I mean, I had, I imagined that all through high school and beyond walking, still walking by an open window when I'm in a lit room makes me worry about what man is out there, you know? Um, I, I grew up in that kind of society and somehow my soul knew it and somehow my unconscious told me and wanted me to know that at an early age so that I would have a long enough time to finally begin to seek my own story. And I didn't really do that until my mid, uh, when I was around 37, 38, I started questioning God and wrestling with the uh, beliefs that I'd grown up with. And because I believed the picture was much bigger than the picture I was being taught and I was ready to move into it. But I went through some really tough times for about eight or 10 years, just figuring out, you know, terrible conflict, a lot of inner pain, just trying to figure out how I could be true to myself without rejecting all the good things in my life. I had a family, a husband, a wonderful husband, still had the same husband after a very long time. Children, two children, wonderful, wonderful children. I had a very comfortable home. I had a very happy life and I was miserable. So what was wrong with me? You know, I thought I was nuts and ungrateful. I went through 10 years of agony. I lost 20 pounds for part of that time just because of the agony I was going through. It was a baptism by fire, as they say in the church, you know. Um, a long dark, it a was, long dark night of it, the soul. Exactly. But there is no growth without suffering. Carl Jung said that. There's no, you cannot grow until you start facing your inner conflicts and, and, carrying on dialogues between both sides. Well, what's wrong with my religion? Well, what's wrong with me? Well, what's wrong with the church? Well, what's wrong with, uh, what's wrong with being a woman? What's right about being, I had to, had, had to deal with my masculine feminine conflicts, my religion and soul conflicts, organized religion and, and souls religion conflicts. I had to deal with all those. And the only way I could do that was by, that I learned how to do it was by discovering Jungian psychology and, learning that my dreams had meaning and figuring out finally beginning to figure out what that Lone Ranger dream meant and beginning to remit my story. Yeah. And once I started doing that and having the courage and the ego strength to question all the, everything I believed in, I was finally able to quit my college teaching job and start writing my books. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And it's made all the difference in the world, remitting my story. And I love that term. And finding our story, developing it, and remitting it. That's what puts, That's what brings wholeness to your soul. That's what brings you home to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about your original story, you have this father figure. Your dad represented your idea of the world from a masculine perspective. And then you go into the dream, and in the dream, your dad and that idea is then represented by the Lone Ranger. He's this masculine hero. It and then thinking about this continuum exactly. that you keep talking about as far as like masculine on one side, feminine on the other, in your worldview, the way that you were viewing this Lone Ranger, he was really far over on one side of the spectrum. This is like a vision of masculinity that if you held on to, it was going to kill you. You're right. But I also had another vision of, of masculinity represented by Tonto. Right. And... Uh, to me, he represents the mediatrix archetype, which um, is essentially feminine, like the church 
Catholic Church talks of Mary as the mediatrix between God and humanity. Um, and, and that's a, a, a fabulous image in a way of, uh, of finding meaning for your life in the strengths of the feminine. Um, but um, I think Tonto was like, he represented the, the, the wise native human being who's close to nature, who's close to both his masculine and his feminine side. You know, nature is very feminine and civilization is very masculine, sort of like Artemis, the, the goddess of the wilderness and Apollo, her twin brother. And that's why the book is The Soul's Twins because Artemis and Apollo are the feminine and masculine aspects of life. She's nature, he's civilization. She's wildness, he's order and music. She's uh, awareness and uh, relationships and uh, living fully. And he's structured and, you know, left-brained and literal and teaching giving the world these images. This is, of course, in the, the Greek myth about uh, Apollo and Artemis. So the soul's twins it represent that continuum. And in truth, nobody's at, totally at one end of either pole. It's because it's a continuum. It goes on forever. And we're all somewhere on the line. But in terms of how much psychological meaning and awareness and potential we have, we're, it's, it goes on forever, I think. But um, certainly I won't have finished all my work in this life, you know, but it, it gives some meaning to my life. It ha helps me to see that I used to be so much more um, controlled by my stereotypes about masculinity and femininity and that I could see the negative sides of both. I can see the negative side of the feminine, the shadow side. I, I know what it looks like. But I know what the, but I only knew then what the negative side of the shadow side of the masculine looked like. And I grew up with that image until I could begin to find out what were the positive qualities in me as a feminine and develop those just as strongly as I had developed my masculine ones. So I'm trying to get rid of stereotypes. I'm trying to give everybody a way to free themselves from that kind of conditioning and to find a better way that they they can express their true souls in. Yeah, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me is just looking at every single person as a continuum, psychologically as a continuum between masculine and feminine. And that, and just being yeah. able to just separate that from their physical, I don't know, from, from all this identity and from this uh, sexual orientation conversation and just look and say, oh, they're, Masculine is neither good nor bad. Feminine is neither good nor bad. They're, you know, so they both have pros and cons depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But as a species, we really do have two prerogatives, like two imperatives. The first is that we cannot survive as a species if as individuals we can't survive. And then we can't survive as a species if as individuals we can't take care of our species. And so it's just like... Exactly. It's just like... um. I think a lot about, you know, we talked a lot about uh, masculine and feminine and black and white thinking. And then we compared that to how reli in religion you can see black and white thinking. But then even, even uh, politically, right, we see very black and white thinking, right? I saw this tweet just the other day. That Absolutely. Just, I saw this tweet that just made me, it just made me think like, God, like, did these people, are they aware of what they're even saying? This guy said something about, 
if a Republican behaves like a Republican, it's expected. But if a Democrat behaves like a Republican, it's a betrayal. And I just thought, come like you've you've got to see the the tribal language here. And um, you've got to be able to see that even politically, conservative and liberal, openness versus, you know, closed mindedness, even there you have to be able to see, you know, it's it's the two wings of a bird. And without both wings, you can't fly straight. Same thing with masculine and feminine. It's just two sides to the same thing. And you need you need both and you need balance. But I do find it really interesting that as far as the reading and the studying that I've done, I haven't found an example of a society that's found that balance. It's It seems to be that they're always leaning one way or the other. You know, there's like the, there's the, there's the early, you know, uh, mother goddess cults that lead into the, you know, the the cat the the, the herd hunters on the plains, which becomes like a masculine thing, and then it it goes back into now they're, you know, this leads to agriculture, and it's just the world that we live in today. I think about it like this a lot. My brother says this to me. He says, the first children that were born into agriculture thought that agriculture had always existed. And so I look at it now and I go, these, the way that we look at things today, it's as if things have always been this way, but we can look back in history and just see that it, it hasn't always been this way. But for some reason, it's just so hard for us to step outside of that. It really is Josh. It's, it's just think about how many spirit persons who really have found that balance that, you know, how many has the world known? Uh, there was uh, you're saying, maybe Confucius. You're saying I, not as not as like a big species wide thing, but like we've never found that balance. But there are individuals throughout history who have found it. That's a really good, yes, like, and, that's a really good and, insight. I haven't really thought about that. Sorry, go ahead. I keep cutting you off. Well, con- consider Lao Tzu, who who inv- who talked about the Tao, and he said, you know, the the yin yang symbolism. The white uh, yeah. and the black. The white is the masculine, but it's got some feminine in it. And the black is the feminine, but it's got some masculine in it. Well, I don't think that's quite enough because ultimately both sides have the same potential. But we as human beings separate everything into opposites. So our job is to recognize and seek the balance between the yin and the yang. It's in us all. We just have to. We and we can only study will help, but if you don't do the inner work, the self work, working on your dreams, working on the images that show up, and trying to have carry on un, silent inner dialogues with them and journal and journal about them and and understand how they show up in you, it's that inner work that you do for on yourself that helps you see these things. But back to this, back to the people who have found that balance, one would assume that. Lao Tzu did. Uh, we believe that Jesus did. You know, Christians believe that Jesus found that, that he had women um, apostles. And he had women travel with him all the time. Um, the patriarchal fathers who wrote these scriptures and believed that they were the actual words of God um, 
interpreted them their own way. Um, but, and Jesus never tried to start a religion, but yet he was so remarkable that he was so balanced that cared about the poor as much and saw the injustice of the world and was fighting against it and believed in loving your neighbor as yourself. That is what an enlightened being looks like. That is what our souls essentially have the potential to become. But we buy into the literal dogma of our cultures, of our religions, of our business sector of society, of our schools, of our families. We buy into their dogma and in which is always one-sided in one way or another, or in many ways, because we are still, we lack so we still lack self-knowledge. I mean, how many hundreds of thousands of millions of years was humanity on this earth before we had it in recorded history, the first few start in China and, and uh, the Near East? with Jesus. And then, and then it was, uh, well, the Buddha, of course, I forgot the Buddha. He sought enlightenment. He worked for it. He meditated for it. He helped people. He traveled the world seeking enlightenment and, and trying to transcend these opposites of life and death and hatred and love and feminine and masculine. He wanted to transcend those opposites and find that third way that transcends these opposites and, and closes the divisions and these are the true spirit people um who who have been able to do that so that's how we know it's possible because there have been enlightened gurus who have extraordinary powers and and, and uh very individuated human beings whose self-discovery has brought them to spiritual oneness there are a lot of these people in the world and not all of them are famous most of them aren't I believe that there are a whole lot more many than we realize, but those aren't the people that we see on television or hear about in the media. But all these people who spend their life's journey trying to discover their story and do it with love and creating harmony in their lives as much as they can and, and, and at least accepting their shadows, if not embracing them, and if not ever overcoming them, but at least if you know you have a shadow, you can control it a little bit. And there are people who try very hard to see what their shadows are so that they can control them and keep them from hurting other people and, and help the world in some way by, by transcending, by accepting the good and the bad and transcending it anyway, being aware of it, changing their lives because of it. So it, it is one of, it's the hardest work anybody could ever do, I think, uh, because it's, it, it's affects you more than anybody else in the world. It's, it's the most crucial thing you could ever do to, to find yourself and to love yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you don't know yourself, you know, know thyself or be true to thyself, to thy own self be true. If you don't, if you can't do those things, if you can't see your ignorance and hatred, and if you profess to be a loving Christian, but that's just words and it's not the way you act, then how enlightened are you going to be and how are you ever going to solve the problems of the world? It's not going to be laws. It's going to be people who know how to find that third place of reconciliation. And, and some of us feel compelled to do that. And if we do, and if we pay attention 
to our dreams and our relationships and our feelings, we can help ourselves create a new story. That's beautifully said. That's very well said. I, I really Thank like that. Yeah. That is the hardest part is um, not having a story and then having, like having a story, it goes away and then having to find another one. And it makes me think you were talking a little bit about the Buddha and this whole conversation about masculine and feminine and the Buddha's path is the middle path, right? It's always right down the middle. That's right. Yeah. Virtue. Virtue right. is to be right down the middle because on one side there's, you know, fury and anger and on the other side there's peace and love and it's probably best. To be. But it, yeah. maybe, maybe that's a bad example, but if there's, um, no, no. Just because I said it, it's it, a good example, but <laughs> I was just trying to do like Aristotle's virtues, and, and I threw out love. But maybe we don't want to be in the middle of love, but but like in the middle of um, you know, where, where yeah, where there's like apathy on one side and exuberance on the other, then right in the middle you have temperance or something like that, and that's that's the middle path. Well, that's essentially the idea. That's why Jungian psychology does talk about uniting the opposites and finding that. Uh, I call it finding that third place, but it doesn't come about just through believing because a person can believe he should be loving and talk about loving and act as hateful as can be. We all know that. Um, so it's not ideas. It's not values. It's not ideals. It's, it's inner work and self-knowledge and healing yourself first. Heal thyself, you know. You have to know yourself. You have to discover your story and you have to try to heal yourself because only then are you going to be able to heal others like i think just you by having this podcast you're seriously fascinated with these ideas you're seriously seeking understanding and and you're doing your inner work you're reading you're studying and if you keep on that path at some point if not you're you're probably already doing it you're helping people just by what you're talking about and what you're broadcasting on your podcast that is helping people they're going to be people who will hear this conversation and learn something they didn't know before and you are contributing to that um and that's what i think we should all be doing we should be carrying our story back to our culture and and try to share as much of it as we can and that's why i write and that's why you're doing podcasts we have to try to help because this is a pretty scary place we're living in right now always has been i guess yeah, I think you're right. I think that in a way, I mean, everything you said, just you're just so good at um, speaking in general terms and identifying specific aspects of my life as you do it, because I really am, this is like my process of individuation in a way, is like finding a way to connect with other people and um, doing it around ideas that are meaningful. And I don't know, if I could do this, if I could just talk to people like you for the rest of my life, then Hey, that's that seems like a pretty good life. So, I'll keep doing it. <laughs> and it's a, and it's a, and it's a service. It's something in you that needs to bring back what you're learning to your community, and you're doing it. That's the hero's journey. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you were able to take that journey as well and um, accumulate all this knowledge along the way and write books and then uh, come and share it with us. So, thanks again, Jeannie. I really appreciate this. This was a lot of fun. I even think. Uh, just energy-wise, I think I felt better this time around, and I just think it, it went really well. So I appreciate your time again, and um, thank you. 
Thank you, Josh. And energy-wise, I feel better about this conversation than the last one, too. I think that last one was great, and I loved it. But I think we got to the bottom of some things in this one that um, a lot of people wonder about, and that might be more helpful. And so I'm really glad you asked me back. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast. I hope you find this and every other episode both interesting and engaging. I know I enjoy making them. My goal is to record high-quality conversations, both in terms of content and production value. But there's still a lot I need to learn. So if you have comments or suggestions about the audio recordings or the conversations themselves, please let me know. You can contact me via email at explorerpoet at gmail.com. For more about the Explorer Poet podcast, please visit explorerpoet.com or follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really want to be supportive, please share it with a friend. Thanks. Thanks.